0: Welcome to Episode 17 of The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. My name is Christian A. Stetler, and I'm a professor in the Social Work Department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And this morning, I'm broadcasting live from Ock Bay, just outside of Juneau, Alaska. And, uh, you know, I always kind of give a weather update on what's going on around here. Weather's still crazy. It's, uh, it, was, it was 70 like a month ago, and now it's just been 40s and 50s. But, uh, you know, it's not been as dark, quite as dark and cloudy as it has been, and uh, we've been really blessed with uh, wildlife recently. I've seen seven bears in the last two days, which has been really cool, even a little cub. Um, and just this morning, I woke up, and uh, the sun was shining through, and there were birds chirping. It was really beautiful. You know, it's the, basically, it's just light all the time, at least we've been waking hours up here at this time. And... Uh, then the clouds came in and the birds were quiet and I didn't see any humpback whales were out there and I was like, oh, what kind of day is this going to be? And I just had this feeling that something that, that uh, we're going to have a connection with, uh, with nature somehow before I started the podcast. And so I was upstairs working out, which I can see out the window over just like just downstairs from here and I can see the ocean. I'm just finishing my workout and there come, I saw an orca come up and there was like 12 of them. We, were, we all ran downstairs. My wife's uh, family or, or her friends are here visiting from... The UK so we all shouted and ran downstairs the first I only saw one little one but there was like at least 12 of them I think maybe more um, and they sat and went through and they were kind of flapping around it Looked like maybe maybe the salmon maybe the king salmon have arrived and they were having some food I'm not sure but that was a real blessing this morning uh, so if you see a bunch of boats behind me and the podcast at all that probably means that there's uh, orcas or at least a humpback out there floating around but anyways um I'm very excited about this morning's episode uh I've got Stephen Silver Brave here blessing us with his knowledge, wisdom, and experience, so I'm really looking forward to speaking to stephen how how you doing stephen I'm doing good my uh weather is nothing
1: like your we- <laughs> your weather. I'm here in Dallas, Texas, and I've been uh up and outside since six thirty and uh it was, I think, 95 degrees when I came inside a few a few minutes ago.
0: 95. So,
1: yeah, it's it's that time of year where, but it's funny because you know a month ago, 85 felt unbearable. Now, now like your body starts acclimating. Now it's like 95 is like ah, as long as there's a breeze, you can <laughs> you can handle it. Yeah. But, Yeah. No humpback whales or anything over over here. Awesome like that.
0: <laughs> well, hopefully we can get into what maybe you do have down there a little bit yeah. later. Yeah. Um, yeah, all right. So I'm very excited to get down to it. Steven Silver Brave he is an enrolled citizen. And uh, Forgive me if I pronounce this wrong, but the Shishangu. 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 Right? Shishangu, Shishangu. Shishangu. Shishangu, Lakota Nation. And maybe um, we can talk about that a little bit later, a little bit later too. I think, you know, I have some familiarity with like Oglala and whatnot through Leonard Peltier. I've uh, read some things, so. Be interested to talk about that, you know, and maybe I can help me make some distinction and understand a little bit better. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, also known as the Roadbud Sioux Tribe of South Dakota. Right now, he resides in Dallas, Texas, where he is a licensed chemical dependency counselor intern and a consultant for Texas' first statewide Native American studies course, where he's helped develop a community-led curriculum for Texas public schools. Stevens currently enrolled at the University of Texas at Arlington's Bachelor of Social Work program where he won the Outstanding Student Activist Award in spring 2022, and is conducting undergraduate research on grassroots, missing, murdered, indigenous women organizations. There's a lot of people that should be interested in that up here, too, um, in in Alaska. Uh, Some stuff going on here, too. Um, Yeah, so happy to have you here, Stephen. Um, I hope that you can share more about yourself and your story and let you tell it in your own words. Uh, we don't do too well with the, I always say that this podcast doesn't do too well with the formal uh, introductions. We like to let it unfold through stories. So hopefully we can get uh, get down to that in just a little bit. All right. So like I said, I can't wait to get down to it. Before we get into the dialogue, there's just a few things that uh, I feel like we need to cover every episode. And so first of all, I want to say that this episode or the podcast would not be possible without the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work. Um. We're supported in every way through UAF, uh, the College of Liberal, Liberal Arts, and uh, the Social Work Department. Um, however, we want to be clear that the, whatever me and Steven talk about, or any of the uh, listeners that tune in, that call in, or ask questions, uh, you know, we can be opinionated folks. So uh, all of our opinions, all of our thoughts, they belong to, to us solely, and they don't represent uh, UAF, Social Work, College of Liberal Arts, or any other organization. Um, and if, you have, and if you have a problem with what one of us says or you want clarification or whatever, um, I wholeheartedly invite you to just take it up on the podcast later on and ask us a question via calling in or put it in the chat. Um, yeah, so if you have a problem with, with, one, with something that we share, just take it up with, with one of us. And you can also email me if you have a serious concern at uh, Stetler. that's C-A-S-T-E-T-T-L-E-R at Alaska.edu. All right, um, and our mission statement reads, the Critical Social Worker podcast unfolds unique stories and diverse perspectives to foster critical dialogue, empathy, and understanding for all listeners. Through storytelling storytelling grounded in social work values, we aim to change ourselves and the world one story at a time. It's a lofty goal. But uh, one of the underlying themes of that mission statement is obviously the idea of telling stories. And so, we here at the Critical Social Worker believe that each individual is multi layered with unique life experiences. And we want to help unfold some of these layers through stories that we can learn and grow from, stories that can help build critical consciousness. Um, yeah, and I want to throw it back to the UAF, uh, University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work. Uh, it's a really badass program, and I'm obviously biased. I work there, I'm a professor uh, in the department. However, I also uh, earned my BSW before moving to Hawaii and then coming back. And uh, I've been a part of several social work departments. And uh, really, our social work department is revolutionary in many ways. We offer a rural Alaskan cohort, which is mainly focuses on ind- uh, indigenous folks across the state. And we bring them to Fairbanks um, twice a semester, so they can receive, instead of just having to complete their education via distance, we get intensive talking circles and whatnot. Uh, staying on in, uh, you know, indigeneity, we have a huge emphasis on indigeneity, especially as it pertains to Alaska Natives. Um, we have some of the most caring uh, staff that will devote their time and effort to help you succeed. Um, we have a, uh, we offer extremely low tuition. Uh, I think you can uh, take a class for under $1,000. And you receive in-state tuition from anywhere in the world uh, if you take our classes via distance. Um, so those are some appealing things uh, that, um, that we offer. And we're also ranked very highly on all the lists for online BSW programs. So if you're interested and you think you might want to apply to UAF Social Work, just uh, look us up. Just look us up on Facebook, Facebook UAF Social Work, or uh, do a Google search, and it'll take you right to us. Or like I said, you can email me at C.A at alaska.edu. And uh, one more thing is, if you enjoy listening to The Critical Social Worker, if you've been tuning in, uh, one of the main ways that you can support us is just by leaving us a review on Apple and or Spotify and just following us right here on call-in and tuning in and participating. Um, Yeah, well, I think we should uh, get this conscious party started for real. Hey, yo, everyone, gather round. It's story time brought to you by the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work and The Conscious Party Productions You are listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast.
1: A Conscious Party.
0: Revolutionizing our minds,
1: elevating our consciousness,
0: changing our worlds. Your story, my story, our, our story. <laughs> Yeah. All right. All right. Well, welcome to uh, episode 17. Officially, I'm here with uh, Steven Silver Brave. Um, and before I get to my first question with Steven, I just want to take a little story time for myself um, to, as we lead into this. So I've shared about uh, some of my addiction and substance abuse problems a little bit here and there on the podcast at, from various episode to episode. But I think, you know, you can always tell these stories in, in different ways or from different perspectives. And so the way I want to tell this one is uh, I began using meth in, a, in my friend's basement with his mom who had just got out of jail uh, probably right around like 21 years ago, 20 years ago, something like that. And uh, used it for a while, ended up, uh, you know, hooked on the lifestyle and, uh, you know, the confidence that the drug gave me. And, uh, in those initial stages, when I was only using sometimes you know having fun, just staying up for the weekend with friends, uh, my friend, his name was uh, his nickname was Bubba. this a real big guy, and he uh, called me one day to ask me to pick him up, and so I drove to this address that he gave me, and I went and knocked on the door and went inside, and I was like looking around, and Bubba's on the couch, and it's, you know it's like a hardcore drug house, so you know all kinds of drug use going on, but it's paraphernalia, it's dirty, it's, uh, it was real nasty. Nasty house. And uh, I looked at Bubba when we got out and when when he was sitting in my truck. And I was like, what the hell are you doing in a place like this? And he just kind of shrugged. And uh, life went on. Still friends with Bubba over the next, I'd say, about a year or so as my addiction progressed. And uh, to make a long story short, about a year later or so, I woke up in that house. That same exact house on the same couch. And uh, I... Remember that the lady who lived there, she—I uh, I don't know what her ailment was—but she had oxygen tank with a, over her nose, and she was still smoking meth, and smoking weed, and smoking cigarettes, and everything else. And uh, she gave me—I think she gave me ten dollars—and asked me. She said, "Ace, can you go to the—can uh, you go to the store and get me a pack of cigarettes?" I was like, "All right, cool." So I was walking to the store, and uh, I just had this feeling like, ah, this is it. I'm done. I can't—I—I I can't go back to that house." And so I took the 10 bucks and I bought, which shows you the my idea of nutrition at the time. I bought a dozen donuts and I was walking down the street and I was eating the donuts. And uh, I could only, I remember I, I was real disappointed because I could really only eat like, like two or three of them. I couldn't put them down, you know, I hadn't really been eating much. And uh, so I left the rest of the box of donuts on the ground and I just kept walking and walking until I ended up at the hospital. And I i really didn't know much about treatment and recovery at all. So. I just went to the psych ward and asked if I could check into treatment and they said they didn't do substance abuse treatment. So I called, uh, my mom who I was ostracized from, uh, at the time. And she happily came and picked me up and drove me to a different hospital, which had a treatment center. And I stayed there for, uh, 28 days, um, and went to treatment. Um, and it was, uh, it, it's interesting how this intersects with Stephen's story as well, because Stephen can tell you more about it, but I know alcohol played a big role in yours. And although I come, you know, I have experienced a lot of alcoholism growing up and, and whatnot. I, uh, as an early adult, I wasn't really that interested in drinking alcohol, but after I went to recovery and it went really well for me, you know, I I really uh, embraced recovery for that first little while, you know, I was going to like, it was a, it was a different, uh, different, culture in recovery back then, uh, before you know, the internet and social media, and there, was a, um, you know, there were a lot of things going on, a lot of events and interactions going on. It was a really great time to be in recovery, but I grew bored with it over time, I guess you'd say. Um, and I still had social anxieties and whatever, and so you know, I ended up d- starting to drink again, or not really again, but um, started drinking regularly. And that progressed all the way into my 30s. So like over a decade. And, uh, you know, like it wasn't necessarily all bad. I had a lot of great times with family, with friends, um, you know, lots of great memories and whatnot. But like, it was slowly, like tearing me apart. Um, You know, my tolerance went up. I was the type of uh, drinker that um, can function very highly when, when when I drink a ton. And that's a blessing and a curse at the same time, because that makes you, you know, believe that you can get behind the wheel. It makes you think that you can keep drinking when, you know, maybe you get to a point where you, you know, you can't, whether it's not you didn't eat right that day or whatever. But I had, I mean, I was gaining weight. I was, um, and even when I look at the pictures, like I just look at my eyes and I'm just not, was just not the same person. It was holding me back. And I don't mean to criticize folks that, that do choose to, to partake anymore, but I had to really come to a conclusion that it wasn't for me. And so While it seemed like the real battle was when I went to recovery back in the day, I never really struggled with not using meth again after recovery. I never came across it. Just, just, you know, going back to all that didn't make sense for me. But alcohol was hard for me because everybody I knew, when I really took an inventory later on, everybody I knew, whether you're talking about family, friends, acquaintances, and so that's really hard. Um, It's not like I was the type that, you know, I'm waking up in the morning looking for a bottle of gin. I wasn't that kind of an alcoholic. I was the alcoholic that needed it to do anything socially, pretty much. Um, And so it was hard for me to give it up. And I really had to uh, make some slow life changes. And even then, I wasn't ever able to say, like, you know, I'm quitting today. Even though I said that to myself several times, I would always go back to some degree. It really just happened for me gradually and naturally. And I slowly cut it down as I became more aware of what it would do to me each time. And then I just stopped, and so those are my kind of two intersecting stories of recovery between, you know, more illicit drugs and then you know the legalized alcohol, and so Steven, I was wondering, you know, I know you have a very interesting story, and if you saw, if you haven't, you can go on. We put it on social media on Facebook and Instagram, but you know, even just looking at this, the the photo of you, and I have a friend that went through something very similar, and like the photos are very similar, and uh, I just want I just want to open it up and have you tell your story, you know. Like, how did you get to where you are today? You know, I look at you and you look like this. I would never guess. I'd say that you look like this healthy, strong man with all the confidence in the world. And I mean, that's that probably represents you today. How did you get how did you get here? It's a it's a long st-
1: it's it, it's a long story, of course. As I mean, even how you just told yours twists, turns, bumps, you know, it's it's, uh, you know, like they say, a, a journey uh, for me. And, you know, every, every time I do a podcast, an interview, like, it's not like I've done hundreds, you know, it's like a handful. I always, when I go back and listen to myself, there's always those moments where, oh, man, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Or, oh, this would have been a good opportunity to say this. Or, um, or man, that, that wasn't probably, uh, someone might have find that, found that offensive. Or I said this stat and I said the wrong number. So I always want to like I already want to pre apologize <laughs> for for anything that uh, that I say that isn't perfect, you know. But I, I always know that um you know they say uh perfect is the enemy of I mean uh yeah perfect is the enemy of great, right? Like you're trying to be perfect and you don't let yourself be great. So and uh, you know I have ADHD, so I talk, I get off on side side track side quest all of that so um but uh yeah i i i love telling my story um in spaces like this um just because i i believe like like you like like everybody has a story right like like each person has a, a unique story and for me when it comes to addiction like i when I look at it now, like I started using substances for the first time I was nine or 10 years old, like the first time I ever smoked weed. But from nine till like ninth grade, it was every now and then, you know, when, when we would get a chance when I was uh, – I, I have a uncle who was like a bigger brother, so and he was um, two years older than me. So if we're at at his house and my grandparents are away like hey you know let's smoke a joint or let's um, see if we can invite somebody over who can you know bring a tequila and do it but I'm a, like a baby almost doing that stuff you know 12 13 and then um it started the first like signs of addiction sort of behavioral I I was probably like 14 or 15 um it was like freshman year of high school where every day I wanted to skip school so we could go get high drink get high whatever but I also I also had strict parents so it was only whatever I could sneak right like I couldn't get so drunk that like you know that they would see me uh, or so high that they would you know, that I was oblivious to the world or anything, but I wanted to, I, I wanted to do that every day. But then towards the end of my freshman year of high school, a uh, uh, guy who used to be a, like, we used to get in fist fights with each other and stuff. I, I grew up in a neighborhood in Dallas uh, called Oak Cliff, very uh, big gang neighborhood. And so myself, I know you said um that i look strong i look big i look good. i'm only 5'5 right <laughs> i'm 5'5 I was chubby my whole life which we'll get to later on in my my addiction how that chubby went like like uh, further but i defense mechanism was to uh you know, hang out with the gang, right? Like try to get involved, even though I always joked that like I could only be a school gangster because my parents were strict. So I couldn't, I had friends who were like, when you go to their house, like maybe their dad or their big brothers, all their cousins, all they're like living the gang life outside of school. You know, they're actually selling drugs outside of school, breaking into house. Everything I did was at school or during the hours that we were skipping school. And then at home, I'm like, Watching wrestling, or you know, sitting on the floor listening to headphones, playing Sega, you know. But at school, I was a gang member. Well, when I was in ninth grade, one of the guys who we used to be like rival gang members, and we had been in fist fights, I went up to him to to uh, uh, fight him one day, and he was like, "Hey, no, no, uh, my life has changed. Like, you can hit me, I won't hit you back. I'm a Christian now." And I was like, "Okay, that's that's weird. I had never seen like experience anything like that." And he, uh, another friend of ours, started saying like, "Yeah, um, uh, his name was Chris. He's like Chris invited, invited me to go to his church." And I'm like, "Okay, so and like he was getting people to go to church with him, like in this like gang infested neighborhood, you know, uh, little." gangster kids and we and so I went and that actually so from the end of ninth grade all the way through high school I was involved in youth group so instead of like I I didn't use substances I wasn't in gangs we were like breaking up the fights at school we were trying to talk to the gang members about peace you know different things like that but, uh, so it was a positive experience in a sense because it really, like, who knows how my addiction or how much trouble I would have ended up getting into in high school. Because I ended up not getting in any trouble other than I've always been, always class clown. And that will pro- that probably continues, you know, today if, if I'm in a meeting somewhere or whatever, you know, I, I got to crack jokes and stuff like that. But... Um, so there was, it it was a positive experience, but when I was growing from being at that, at that church in a youth group sense to like, now I'm becoming an adult, it started, there started being a lot of problematic things with it. But for myself, one thing, um, like the church there wanted me to be a, uh, a preacher. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to go into education, be a teacher, but I ended up letting the adults there against the uh, wishes of my parents and my teachers and stuff like that. I I went to a Bible college to become like a pastor, and I was there for one semester, and it cost too much mo- money. For, uh, the, I, I really couldn't afford it, and um, I had a girlfriend at the time, and so. I didn't go back the next semester, and then my girlfriend—I'm 18 years old. She, in she's pregnant, and you know there's only one way that pregnancy happens. You know, at that time, you know, it, it, between an 18 and 19 year old, and so it's like we got to tell we got to tell the church. We, you know, that's a big no-no in that. It's a uh, Pentecostal Assemblies of God church, um, and when we told them. They they told us that we had to get married right away, and we couldn't uh, we couldn't have a big wedding. It had to be on a Sunday in between their morning and their afternoon services. We could only invite immediate family. She couldn't wear a white dress. All, all sorts of, and then that afterwards we were going to be basically we were going to be on on punishment. Like we had people had to know of what we what we did. We couldn't be leaders among the youth group anymore it's like shunning right like um and people talk about religious trauma uh, this is some of the kind of stuff that that comes from that right because we're just kids and like at that time like I believed in everything well when I was 14 15 16 every year that goes on you realize a little more that like the adults aren't everything that they're saying that That they are right but there was times where i thought like this is it this is everything like i gotta save people's lives i gotta do this i gotta do that but then instead of embracing us or giving us a chance they shunned us really so that day after that meeting um me and my and and the thing is you know we were very young and that was my girlfriend at the time and she's my wife still to this day Uh, We're still uh, married 19 years, and uh, we left the church, and that was the first time ever in my life that I said – like I was so upset that I wanted to go get drunk for like a coping mechanism. Like I would never done it. When I had done it when I was young, it was like, oh, to have fun. But we left that day, and I got like blackout drunk. For the first time and uh, ever, and I did it because I was so upset, and that would kind of, for years, become a become a habit. You know, I, I'm upset. Let's drink. Let's. Um, but the other thing is, you know, my uh, I'm 18 years old. By the time I'm 19, we have the the my first son is born, and then 13 months later. When i'm 20 my second son is born so i'm 20 years old two kids no college and so i i had to work you know i i go to work you know and it was one of those things where you know like when i tell my kids about it i'll say like oh yeah i used to work 65 hours a week when you were first born and stuff and now i'm thinking like I probably worked 65 hours a week one time, but you know, it was one of the, it was, uh, uh, I had to work overtime for sure every week to, you know, pay the bills. Um, and when I, you get into that lifestyle, a lot of the guys that are working there, you know, after work, hey, you know, we're going to, we're going to drink, we're going to, you know, that's, that's the lifestyle, you know, especially on the weekends. And so I'm, 21 22 uh drinking hard drinking on the weekends but then i have um a story that was very similar to what you were talking about when you were in that in that meth house but this wasn't with meth but there was a time where i was leaving work and i had this guy this guy asked for a ride home i gave him a a ride home he said hey can we stop at the gas station on the way home i'm like sure and uh, we stop at the gas station and he gets out and he um, when he comes back he has like two uh, 40 ounces in his hand and he you know sits in the in the passenger seat and he starts opening one and I'm like whoa, whoa, whoa like you can't drink in the car while I'm driving you home. I'm like I'm like, what am I seeing right now? We've been off of work for ten minutes and this guy has to get a drink and, and he's like, Oh my bad, man. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to get pulled over because of you and he like gets out of the car and chugs one of his 40 ounces and gets back in and I was like okay and so at that time I'm drinking a lot you know um but I'm like if i ever do that like I'm never getting to that point because that's an alcoholic that's what I saw in my mind and we'd fast forward six months later maybe I'm doing the same thing. Like when the, when it's time to get out of work, I cannot wait till I get that first drink. You know, that's how addiction, there's so many of those, you put the barriers in front of you and say, okay, if I get to that point, I know I have a problem, but then you just push right past it. You know, the next thing for me was, okay, as long as I'm not drinking in the morning, boom, you know, late, uh, Six months later or so, I'm, I'm I'm having the drink in the morning, and what happened for me, like how you mentioned, high functioning. Um, I'm not really a fan of that term because a lot of like everyone thinks they're high functioning, right? Like, I mean, nearly everyone. There's some people who are like, oh yeah, you know, my life is crap right now, but most people think they're they're high functioning. Um. But then soon you realize, like when you look back, you're like, "Nah, I I wasn't really functioning all that good. I was barely maintaining." So I, I I called myself high functioning because I was still holding down a full time job, Uh, you know, didn't have a lengthy criminal record or anything like that. Uh, You know, was home with my kids every night and my wife. But and so I would always say, "Oh, I'm just hurting myself. That's all I'm doing." Because I knew, because I could see. My health was deteriorating, um, and I was getting to where, like when I would wake up in the morning, I would always have such a bad hangover, and I knew, like, okay, if I drink, if I drink some before I go to work, I can, I can uh, maintain um, and get through the. And I, I, I would always say, like, okay, if I drink before I go to work. And then don't drink at work because only a crazy person would do that, right? So I'm like I, I would drink before work and then take a nap at lunch and then struggle through my last three or four hours before I, would, before I could get off the clock and then really start drinking again. And that was the pattern that I was in, and um, obviously it wasn't healthy. And so what it did for me was um, I ended up at 32 years old, uh, I had cirrhosis of the liver. So I started, uh, I think it was about six months that I was like, man, like sick. And I knew it was from drinking, but I just didn't know how to stop. And, you know, for a lot of that time, I didn't have the desire to stop, but I had so much pain in my belly and, and I weighed over 300 pounds. I didn't know I weighed that much. I, I knew like, man, I gained a lot of weight. I didn't know I weighed over 300 pounds at the time um, until I was in the hospital when they weighed me and I was 310 pounds. I would always say like, man, I gained a lot of weight. I probably weigh around 260 uh, when most of my life, I was probably like, like around 200 pounds, you know? So, um, but My eyes had started to turn yellow, but the worst thing was um, I didn't have any energy. I could barely get myself to get out of bed, and I had quit working the month before I got sober and the month before I went to the doctor. I had somehow convinced my wife that – oh, and I was also um, coughing up blood all the time. They're like, okay, something's not right with my health. I need a rest. I've been working too hard for too many years. Like, I'm gonna, and my job is stressing me out. I need to quit work. And so I can have like a, a reset and then I'll find a new job. And, but I never said, like, oh, I need to get sober. Right. So, but one morning I was trying to get out of bed. I really couldn't get out of bed. I was supposed to be taking the, the kids to school. Uh, and it was going to be their last week of school and I couldn't get my shoes on because my legs were so swollen. And my wife was like, you're going to the emergency room today. I was like, okay. And I went in there and when I went in within like five minutes, you know, they did, um, the blood pressure stuff. They, um. yeah, but I guess because my blood pressure was so high, they had me sitting in a wheelchair, and then they did blood work, and they came out, and they were like, "Like you're not leaving. You're, they're like, your liver uh, enzymes are crazy, and uh, I was in the hospital for eight days with cirrhosis. There were doctors telling me um, that they didn't know if I was going to live, and then I had one doctor tell me um, – he said, he said, I, I, I know what's going to happen. He said, you're, you're young, you're scared, but you've done this much damage to yourself, you're not going to do what needs to, to uh, be done to take care of your health. So he said, you'll probably stop drinking for three weeks or so, and then in three months, you'll be back here and you'll probably repeat that cycle one more time and then you'll you'll probably die before the year's over. And I was like, what? I was and my sister-in-law was the only person in the room with me when that happened, but I was like I was pissed at that guy. Like how like I'm telling him that I'm going to take care of my health and that I have uh, young kids and things like that. And I don't know if he was doing like a Jedi mind trick on me. Or if he was just speaking from experience of what he'd seen, um, but I that really really helped keep me sober really in the beginning because I was like, you know what, I'm gonna prove this dummy wrong. I'm gonna prove that I'm different. I'm. And then what really happened after I was home for two weeks, I started feeling a little because I hadn't drank for for two weeks. They drained because um, when you get cirrhosis, one of the Giveaway signs is you get this uh, fluid in in your stomach that only comes if you have liver failure called ascites. And they drained it, and them draining that gave me so much relief from the pain that I had had in my stomach for uh, the previous six months. And so after two weeks, I wasn't feeling nowhere near 100%, but I was feeling a little better. And that little thought in my head came, like, you know what? I'm not saying I'm going to get drunk, but I think I could probably go and get something to drink and I'll be all right and then it reminded me of what that doctor said like wait he he said within three weeks you'll be back drinking again then within three months your liver is gonna fail again and so that's when I was like okay I need I need help and that was the first time that I ever sought help and I went to um, to like a, a aA meeting. Which um, I know we'll probably get into it more later. In the beginning, that was very crucial for me to uh, get and stay sober. I'm I don't I I don't do that anymore, but it was in the beginning. um, Really, finding other people was a huge part. So that's that's kind of my sobriety story. And then from there, once I got sober, um, it after a while it led me to needing to see if there were other people who were going through something similar with with i feel like i was the only 30 year old in the world i was 32 the only uh, uh, early 30s person in the world who had cirrhosis from drinking so much and so i was like i need to figure out are there other people who have this disease that are my age because i'm like looking online and everybody's you know 60 70 um and then i'm like and also do i know anybody else who doesn't drink because everybody i knew it seemed like it, it it seemed like everybody i knew partied and drank and stuff like that and so um i started you know sharing sharing my story and that led to uh that led to you know really how i started becoming open about it which then led to me getting the um uh, the licensed chemical dependency counselor certification, because at the time I was helping so many people, that I was like, "Well, maybe I can do this for a living." And then the counseling turned into social work, really di- during the pandemic. And yeah, I don't like it's just so many turns. I I don't know if you have any any questions so far? Or, Cause I feel like I've been rambling for a while.
0: Yeah, well, um, you know, I'm trying to, I've, I've read your story and hear, hear you talk about it. I'm trying to put on time on like somewhat of a timeline in my mind. And, uh, you know, I know for me, when I stopped using drugs, I kept that uh, and went to recovery. For the most part, I didn't talk about it at all. Like I didn't talk about it with the kids I worked with. I didn't talk about it with like, you know, uh, romantic partners, females. I didn't talk about it to, to family. Um, I didn't talk about it to anyone I, uh, at work, whatever. I just kept it, tried to put it behind me. And uh, it wasn't until much later, you know, that I, uh, you know, felt the call to, to open up a little bit and let my story not only he, uh, help other people, but it's also healing to share your story. And, you know, sometimes the only thing worse than everybody knowing is nobody knowing about it. You know what I mean? And just, just carrying it solo, you know, after I stopped going to, to recovery meetings and whatnot, anyway. And uh, I was just curious, how did you decide, you know, like how long after you, uh, you know, went, got into recovery, did you decide that you wanted to use your story and did you feel any, uh, I guess I didn't mention that, you know, the reason I didn't do it is because I was, I had a fear of, um, of being judged and feeling ashamed because of that judgment. And, you know, I, I really empathize with your religious story. You know, I grew up in Utah and so, you know, really homogenous Mormon LDS culture. And no, no hit on them. It's just hard to be, to to kind of grow up and 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 be living in sin. I guess if that's if that's the way you want to put it. But how did you decide um, to use your story?
1: Yeah. What's crazy is mine is almost the opposite of what you said. What happens with yours? Because I was like when I first got sober. So I remember the first time that I told anyone other than my family was exactly when I uh, when I was gonna get like my two month my 60 day chip you know in AA I, I remember so clearly so now like two weeks ago was my seven years. and I know some people um, count every single day and some people believe like that counting days makes it harder and makes it more of a struggle and i'm somewhere in between um you know like i i don't count every single day but i definitely know when the big big days come like the year and the things like that but in the beginning i was like every single day like had a little counter app on my thing like oh i'm at 58 days i'm at 57 days i'm at 50 like man will i make 60 you know or like i know i'm gonna make 60 type deal and i remember clearly on on uh my 60 days sober and i remember i was sitting on the arm of my couch and i'm typing up this thing on facebook and like i'm gonna tell people that i'm uh that i haven't drank in 60 days and that it's the best decision i've ever made and things like that and i was like so excited about it and but i was like now what's gonna happen and i did kind of feel like like i might be burning everything down but i'm cool with that like because from the time I was 18 until I stopped working when I was 32, I had worked in, uh, like, banking and doing uh, auto loans and, uh, and credit department and things like that. And so I did think, like, like um, you know, if people start knowing, like, oh, he has a drinking problem or he has – they they might not hire me. But I was also like, but well, maybe I don't want to go work at places like that that would not hire me because that so and also i was like what is my friends gonna say my family members who don't know the ones who i party with the most and i put it out there and two things happen every single person was supportive so it was like that like man i'm so proud of you or man i've been noticing something was different about about you you know like type type stuff um way to go hopefully you could get 90 days you know that that kind of stuff um oh we're so glad to hear you're doing better you were you were worrying me so much with your health and you know things like that and then people started publicly and privately reaching out to me like hey man uh i haven't drank in two years either man my stuff had got real bad or or uh you know um yeah i i had um this these ulcers from drinking so I haven't drank in five years and these are people who like I interacted with fairly often or co-workers or stuff like that and so I was like like there was a time where I was thinking nobody can relate to me no nobody my age can nobody in my circle can relate to me the people who struggle with alcohol are different than me. The p- people who struggle with substances are different. Like where are the people that I and then come to find out, they were there, but they just weren't open about it, which is totally fine. Like every everybody has their own whatever. But I was like, I'm gonna be open so that if there's somebody who's looking for looking f- uh, for what I was looking for, was someone who they could relate to. So that's what made me. And it kind of, for a few years, really, it became like my identity, right? Like it's what I posted about online. It was when I was out and about. I was all about recovery, all about sobriety. And what I say kind of the opposite is now I find myself a little more like when I'm in a certain place at a certain meeting or given a certain presentation or whatever, I'm like, like, I'm not going to mention anything about recovery or sobriety or, like, uh, that's not relevant to this. In the beginning, it was, like, boom, in your face all the time. Like, I'm in recovery. I haven't drank in so long, whatever. But now I do get the thought sometimes, like, wait, like, okay, there's this research project they're looking for someone to be a part of, and what if they think that, like, I might not be dependable because I could fall back to how I was, even though I know that I won't, you know, but um, it's weird how it's almost the opposite. Like, like you said, as time's gone, you've got a little more and I've got like a little like, all right, Steven, chill out. You don't have to always lead with your sobriety story, you know, type deal.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I, that also turned me away from telling people, like, I remember even I, I, I saw a couple therapists over the years and when I would bring up, my time of addiction, even though it was a long time ago, they would always like bring it as the central focus that defined me. And you know what I'm saying? Like I was trying to deal with other things. Like I had felt like I'd resolved those problems myself for the most part and, uh, and other people too, you know, then it's like, yeah, it just becomes, sometimes it becomes like a, the relationship changes when, when they learn things and they over, you know, the, they take the information that you gave them too far. But you know, even other ways that we were, we were so that our experiences are so different, it just shows the variety of experiences that one might have in, in you know, trying to, to trying to, to um, clean their life up or get sober or off drugs. Is that when I got out of rehab, I'm not going to try to you know call people out, but I was at a, I was staying at a family member's house, and uh, they had a party for their girlfriend, and it was me and uh, I was I was living there, but my friend from that I went to to rehab with he was staying the night at my house and we stayed there and we didn't really know what's going on, but they had a big party for his girlfriend. And we just, I think we just stayed away from, I don't remember anything about that. But then, um, the next morning they just started going partying again. And the family member, one of my family members, friends comes up to me, he's like, you guys ain't drinking what's going on. And, uh, we're like, no, we're we're good. And he's like, well, are you guys some kind of pussies or what? What? And I'm sorry for saying that on the, but that's, you know, like calling me, it, you know, um, just really trying to put us down. And, uh, I guess not trying to put, I don't think he was intentionally trying to put us down, but that's a, a real put down feeling, you know, to be insulted when you're really trying to be proud of the things that you're trying to do. And so I really struggled in that regard. And another time, you know, I, um, moving on to when I did have the problem with alcohol, I, uh, at a family function, we were supposed to meet at a bar and, uh, Long story short, there was a country music there ended up being a country music uh concert at the bar, so my family had went there and decided not to pay the ticket price and go, but me and my friend had went in and we were in this we were out of town in Wyoming and I got in a bar fight and um ended up getting charged with a really serious crime woke up in 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 jail with a hangover went to the judge and It is a terrible experience and uh I remember I got out and my one of my relatives that picked me up said you know, I was very upset. I was crying, you know, like they had just charged me the serious felony, which I didn't, I mean, I got it uh, reduced. So I'm, I'm not a felon, but, um, she told me, you know, maybe you just can't drink anymore. And, you know, it was really hard for me to hear that. Like, cause I didn't believe it. Mm-hmm. But then when I went back to, uh, the, the family function, the first thing that happened was people put, you know, they were, they had gotten over being mad at me for getting arrested and they had begun, it was nighttime by then the next day and it was just all over again when i went to court for the same thing um i went there with a family member and we got slammered um before and i went to court with the worst and i mean this seriously with the worst hangover one could ever imagine and i assume that that family member had it too and i i don't know at the time but i'm assuming that everybody knew i'm sure we couldn't get rid of the smell and the way we looked and he gave me a way harsher sentence than that they had uh, said I'm that the attorney said I might get. And uh, it was real hard for me to hear, but it just shows like the level of, of insanity that I was going through, you know, like, why would I, and then yeah, I went for years after that. Um, and uh, yeah, so I just think it's, it's really interesting in the, in the way that our parallels have shifted because even now, you know, like I said, I'm much more comfortable talking about it. And I, like I said, I almost wear it like, uh, I don't want to say like a badge of honor, but like, you know, it gives me credibility and that I've been there before. And, and, and I know about certain things. Um, and so it's kind of been a release for me, but I was wondering another parallel or another parallel I have with you that's different is that although I didn't, um, ever come face to face with methamphetamine again you know there were a couple times where somebody I ran into an old friend and they were driving and I was walking and they picked me up and I felt really really tempted to do that and so I was wondering have you hit any like pitfalls any struggles within your since you've gotten um since you stopped drinking like I know you mentioned the one time where you felt uh like you wanted to go try but and you mentioned so much support but um Have you had anybody or I mean, have you had any experiences where you're like, you really question things or, you know, you just I don't know any pitfalls that you hit that you've hit in your recovery?
1: Yeah. So I I think in the beginning, like and when I say beginning, you know, timelines all get fuzzy, right? It's been seven years. But so I want to say maybe the first two years, it was like how they say every day, every, every day the main part, my main goal was to just stay sober, not drink, you know, set up like I'm going to go to a, to AA meeting. Uh, I have a workout plan. I have this person I can call this, Um, stay away from this event Stay, you know, like I'm staying away from certain situations, things like that. And then at some point it became where like I'm, I I'm like a uh, have like a rebel spirit, right? Like good trouble type thing, right? Like like I, I never been in, in serious bad trouble, but a, a little bit, you know. I'm I I love hip hop. Um, I don't listen to punk rock, but a little of that punk rock spirit, and I started feeling like you know what the most punk thing you can do, the most hip hop rebellious thing you can do is go to a party where everybody's drinking, and you're loudly not drinking, right? Like, you're sitting at the bar asking for a coffee. Like, I, like I'll like i do that, right? And, like, because if I'm going to hang out late, I need to uh, have a coffee. But also because it's kind of cool, right? To, wait. to To me, it's kind of cool. Probably everybody else thinks it's lame to wait at the bar. And like, hey, what can I get you? Hey, y'all got coffee? Oh, no coffee. Oh, okay. Well, just give me a water then. You know, give me two waters. I'm really thirsty, you know, type deal. So I, I did that for a while, like like, um, put a spin on it, right? Like, like it's cooler to not drink than it is to, to drink. And I would – so nobody would really ask me like, hey, drink, whatever, because I'm like kind of – openly and they're laughing about it like he has a coffee and a water okay yeah we have our jack daniels you know so um but really i think the main thing and what keeps me from any pitfalls now and like today you know this this afternoon we're going to a a birthday party for a family member and there's going to be a lot of you know drinking there a lot um first of all i Love that I have control over you know when uh, when I go, uh, you know what time I get there, when I leave like like I like i'm I'm like you know when when you first get there, nobody's really drinking after a while people start drinking, and f- for most of them, you know like they get a little more fun, you know the party become you know and it's a little what but then when it starts to get to be where like they think they're having fun. But to people who are not drinking, they're pretty annoying. That's when I'm just like, okay, I'll peace out. And I love being able to do that, right? Like I, I don't have to wait for anybody to take me home. I don't have to whatever. But what what's happened over these years, and um, I'm sure you can relate, relate to this, and this is probably why you said like you never intentionally said like, oh, now I'm going to get sober. You just kind of stopped. At this point, I built up a life. That I love so much, everything about it, my health, the relationship I have with my family, with my community, um, work, all of it, everything about my life right now, I, I love it too much to give up to to uh, for drinking. And I know for myself that even if I w- if I was to go to that birthday party tonight and have a few beers or one one mixed drink. I would lose trust from certain people, or lose the way that certain people look at me, and, and that's it's not the same like that for everybody. You know, a lot of people it's not a, it's not a big deal at all, but in my life, and then I just love my mornings too much to have to want to worry about hangovers, and that's the thing that I try to convey. That a lot of I feel like a lot of uh, people who are in active addiction can't see that there is a point where you can create a life that the addiction doesn't even seem appealing anymore because like what I have right now is too good to lose for a little buzz.
0: When, you know, it made me smile. It only gave me a little bit of confidence in myself. So so it instilled some confidence in my heart was hearing you talk about, you know, being able to go into these environments where people are drinking, even if it's a bar or whatnot, and, you know, proudly embrace who you are. And that takes a lot of confidence and authenticity as a human being. And, you know, I think I've struggled with that, you know, because I was afraid that people would, or I wouldn't I would be able to socialize or people wouldn't, you know, want to be around me in, in, in these situations. And I think that that's, can be somewhat true in some places. But um, it made me think of, have you ever seen the movie uh, Coach Carter?
1: I've seen it. I, I don't remember a lot about it. There's it's a... a, it's a basketball movie, right?
0: Yeah. I don't remember everything about it. I just know they use a, a a quote in there. Uh, when the one kid is struggling, he goes and he, I think he's kicked off the team and he goes and recites the quote to Sam, the coach, Samuel L. Jackson, but it's a quote from Marianne Williamson. Um, she's running for president by the way, right now. Anyways, I had that same book when I was in jail, when I was in, I had to do a short jail stint for that crime I talked about. I was in jail for like 20 days and, um, I had that book and, you reminded me of that quote where it's like talking about, you know, our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate, that it's, that we're powerful beyond measure. You know, it's our light, not our darkness that most frightens us. But it also, I don't have the line right here, but it also talks about how, you know, by you shining that you give other people liberation to do the same. And it made me think about, um, you know, I talked about how I didn't ever mention anything back in the days cause I was ashamed or afraid what people would think or, or whatnot. And, um, but recently since I stopped drinking, There's a few groups of people that I've, you know, newer people that are kind of newer in my life that I was in group text messages with that I had been to places and had a beer with, for example, not not like got drunk with, but had a beer a couple of times with for work and whatnot. And I sent them a message and I just said, Hey, I just, you know, no pressure on anyone or anything. I'm just saying that if you see me not drinking or, you know, turning down a drink, I'm just, I'm trying to break some intergenerational stuff. I was just really honest about it. And I just don't, I'm not going to drink anymore. Just letting you know. You, you don't have to do that, you don't have to worry about me, I'm just letting you know why I won't. And at least somebody in each of those groups responded, I've been thinking about doing the same, you know, I've been thinking the same thing. And it makes me wonder how many other people are, you know, waking up with those hangovers and waking up and whatever, and they're thinking to themselves, you know, I wish I, wish I didn't have to feel this way. And that I think you and I are evidence that you don't, and you and I are both evidence, as well as not just being, not, not drinking, for example, but you know being uh, fathers and family members and um, you know working to help other help other folks it it really is possible to feel better um, and so I just want to thank you for sharing that story and, and for just being you in general. I mean I really think that that gives other people permission to seek that out for themselves and that hey, happiness and we Oh
1: no, I was going to say no problem and, and I know this isn't like a uh, recovery. Uh, podcast, you know all all, all that, um, but I don't think like you don't have to be an addict to get uh, uh, to have the advantages of being sober, right? Like, um, it's it's like you said, breaking breaking generational trauma, not having. To me now, I'm I'm all about being free and being as free as possible. And if you have any sort of addiction that's or or any sort of like, hey, you know what? I don't really I, I'm not addicted, but when I go to a place, I don't feel my normal self without either smoking something or drinking something or whatever. Like imagine being so free that you don't need to do that stuff. Like you're yourself either way, or sometimes I tell people the reason why you go to a certain place and you feel like you have to drink when you're with that place are at that place is because it's somewhere you don't really want to be, or you're with some people you really don't want to be with. Like, like do something where you feel like you don't have to do that, you know? And, and uh, yeah, it's just, it's to, to me, it's not all about recovery and getting clean and all that. It's about being free about truly not, not uh, letting anything control you, any person, substance, things like that.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to see if we can look a little bit deeper. So uh, for the class I'm teaching, the substance abuse class I'm teaching this summer, I'm using the book um, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction by Dr. Gabor Mate. And his, one of his main mantras, basically, is uh, people always asking, you know, why the drugs or why the alcohol? Why are you, why are you doing this to yourself? He's saying it's the wrong question. That you should be asking why the pain. And I know for me, you know, especially after years and years have passed and I'm able to look backwards um, as objectively as possible, You know, I see that the reasons for my addiction were far deeper than, you know, wanting to use the drug. Like that was the very, actually the smallest component of it, to be honest with you. It was so many deeper issues that I had within myself that needed to be healed. You know, I had another, there's another, uh, there's a Yupik elder. um, She's passed away, so rest in love, grandmother Rita Blumenstein. But she says, you know, that we have, many of us have a hole, H-O-L-E, a hole in ourselves. And uh, in order to be whole h o l e we have to fill the hole with something that's mm-hmm. better, and so I was just curious, you know now that you can look backwards did you feel did you see other things that you needed to resolve in your life, other things that needed to be healed and other hole, holes that needed to be filled before you could be whole that were unrelated to the i'm mean, not unrelated to the alcoholism, but i 'm saying that they came before that, and so you know maybe they those, uh, feelings, traumas, whatever they may be, you know, helped lead you into that. And perhaps, you know, alcohol also was, uh, 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 you know, self-medication. Did you, did you experience any of those things? Or when you look back, do you, do you feel that way? Yeah, for, for sure. So,
1: so when I first got sober, so even before I got sober, whenever it was like obvious that it was a problem, um, my mom, you, you know she she knew that i had a problem but she would be like why why you know we, we brought you up so good you didn't have this you didn't and it would make me think and she would be like telling me you know people who drink this much like they've had you know this happened their parents got divorced or someone got murdered or someone like there was this 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 she's like and so and she was like nothing like that happened to you like why are you, you? and so when i first got sober i would think the same thing you know And I would go to AA and I would think like, what, what is the reason? What is, and it took me probably, you know, three years or so. And then now when I look at it, like, oh, oh, of course it makes perfect sense. So first of all, um, I'm American Indian. I'm Lakota. Um, We, oh, and before I get too much into this, I I want to uh, dispel a myth that Native Americans have higher rates of addiction than anybody else blah blah every culture worldwide for as far back as they could go modern day whatever rich poor whatever struggle with addiction and when you're looking in the United States there are certain years where when they're going by records and stuff like this where american indians have the highest rate but then there are certain years where it's white people there's certain you know so it's it's we don't have crazier rates of addiction than anybody else. It it affects all races all you know but okay now into how that does affect <laughs> no but we we have all of us have um, generational trauma. Right? My grandma the reason that we're from Rosebud South Dakota, which is the neighbor of Pine Ridge by the way. Like they're they're Pine, Pine Ridge and Rosebud are neighbors. So, but my my uh, grandma is from Rosebud, born raised. But the reason why I'm in Dallas, Dallas, Texas, is because when she was 18 years old, she got she got moved here as part of what's called a uh, the Indian Relocation Act. So she grew up, went to the boarding schools, um, suffered abuses, things like that. Then when she was 18. They offer her this program where she can go and move to a city. They're offering it to a lot of um, Indians, American Indians at the time, to get them off of the reservations, right? uh, The whole plan is to Americanize them, do away with the reservation system, and then hopefully, you know, it's stuff that started all the way back in the 1700s, 1800s. They just found little different creative seemingly more uh ethical ways of doing it right so my grandma gets moved to uh dallas her life from the time she was five years old when she first went to the boarding school until the day she passed away pretty much is just filled with struggles so she had a hard time growing up which of course that means that my dad had a hard time growing up so then my dad my mom they're doing the best that they can but I'm we're in a uh, poor neighborhood I'm part Mexican part American Indian short chubby in the in the rough part of town having to fight since you know since I was six years old fight or make friends with the bullies which I was a lot better at making friends than I was at fighting. Like I, I, I fought a lot and I got beat up a lot, but I also could make friends with people that would help me out. Um, and so it was like, I, I I can't point at a lot of specific, like, oh, this traumatic event was what I was trying to cover up, but it was just a lot of, a, a lot of trauma, uh, growing up um, in the area I grew up and with the background that I that I uh, grew up in and um, knowing that I'm uh, Lakota, you know Native American, but there's not really anyone else like that around me. so I always like have to say like oh I'm Mexican, I'm Mexican. And then we'd go in the summer and get to be with our family and get to experience culture and get to experience our ceremonies and our ways. But on the day to day life, um, there's no connection to that, no uh, uh, deep connection. So I feel like those were the sort of things that led to it. And then just the the um, you know, having my sons at such a young age and having to to work and just feeling like this is what men do, you know, I'm, I'm 18, 19, 20, 21. And like, this is what men do. Men go to work and men drink when they're off work. And then it goes from, you're trying to self-medicate to like, you physically need the substance just to feel normal. And that's, that's what happened to me.
0: Yeah. It's a, you know, I know you said you can't point specifically and that's hard. That's hard to do for anyone. I think. Um, but you know that the it's interesting the certain events that you mentioned you know such as like boarding school the the being removed from the land after you'd already been removed from the land before um, you know kind of being displaced and whatnot it's easy to see how those things can affect an individual or a group of people or a family and how that can lead you know to being more susceptible to something like alcoholism or addiction just like if I were to trace. You know, again, looking at at my family, different, but somewhat the same. Um, You talk a lot about, you know, how recovery led you to kind of reclaim your culture. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, what that means. And then also, you know, speaking to the larger issue, when we're looking at, I know, um, you know, here in Alaska, you know, obviously there's a lot of the same problems with indigenous folks across the state. Alaska's huge. So there's a lot. There's you know it's not so simple, but um you know there there are things that have happened individually collectively, historically that really haven't been resolved or healed um the way that it needs to be healed. I think healed would be the best way to put it there has the healing hasn't taken place on the level that it needs to be, and part of that's because the resources aren't there and whatnot. But what do you say to that? Like, um, how did you, what is reclaiming your culture along with recovery? What does that mean to you? But on the other side, too, at the bigger picture, how do we, you know, move forward and find the healing that's necessary? Because we can respond to addiction when somebody is addicted or somebody is partaking in it. But how can we, you know, heal the wounds that might lead us to be susceptible to those kind of things?
1: Yeah. So for, for my own personal story, When I got sober, like at the same time when I was getting sober, uh, struggling with uh, cirrhosis, my grandma got diagnosed. So I got, it was in May of 2016 when I got diagnosed with cirrhosis. And then my grandma in October, she... um, of that same year got diagnosed with uh, lung cancer, so I'd always been pretty close to to my grandma my th- this is my dad's mom my mom's mom I was really close to like I lived with her for certain times in my life and things like that but she passed away uh about five or six years before I had got sober or anything but my other grandma so she got diagnosed with lung cancer and she started having a lot of appointments um and she needed someone to take her to appointments well guess what well i wasn't working because i was also sick you know it took me like 18 months to really start to feel better from when i got diagnosed with cirrhosis so in 2016 the end of 2016 i start like taking her to her appointments and um you know, so like my days were you know taking my kids to school go to aa meeting take my grandma to appointment go to gym and do that like three five times a week and we're just talking talking and um in 2018 i said hey we haven't been to to uh, south dakota in a while uh, you know to the to the reservation and we got hundreds of family members over there you know so so we could be i would communicate with them on facebook she you know talked to him on the phone but we hadn't actually been up there in a in a while to like our ceremonies or anything like i didn't go the whole time when i was like deepest in my addiction so for like 10 years i didn't go up there because um first of all it's really hard to travel 800 miles when you you know want to drink all day and every every day and also with. Uh, you know, I had a young family, work, stuff like that. And I said, but let's go back because another thing that I was struggling with at the time was in AA, you know, they they have the concept of a higher power. But um, I knew I wasn't Christian. And I was really like, I don't know if I have a higher power, you know. And then I was remembering, you know, the ceremonies that we went to from, you know, the time I was uh, we started going back my grandma started going back and we would go with her from the time I was eight until the, when I was nineteen was the last time I had ever went until I got sober and I said let's go let's go up there and visit and let's go to ceremony and let's see you know uh, how it feels And man right away first of all my family was all just like welcome home. Welcome home. We're so glad you're bringing grandma home. We're so glad you're here. We, we, you know, we, uh, we missed you. We're so glad to see you're doing good. And then there was just the power in the ceremony and, um, it, it changed everything. When, when I came back, it, it kind of reminded me. So some people say, um, you know, oh hey, when you know, when I was in my thirties, I found out that I was Native American. that didn't happen to me. Like I've always been Native. Like you know, my grandma lived with us. I we, we always known. You know, we visit our family every summer. Um, but I didn't um, have a relationship with the culture, with our beliefs, with our you know, with our spirituality and things like that um, until starting again in twenty eighteen. And that's when I started to see more – like I was already helping people with addiction and things like that, but with Sanmore, um, I want to help my people. I want to help my people, and I want to get help from my people. I want to use our our ways, our ways of being uh, – to stay sober whether that, rather than using um, another culture's uh, – belief system or rules or things like that.
0: Let's talk about um, 12 steps for a minute, uh, like 12 step programs, Alcoholics Anonymous, excuse me, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of them. I don't know how many there are these days. But, um, you know, I think that for the most part, those steps really helped me at first, just because I, it, they were some tools to look inward in there and, you know, and look at my life and, and try to make amends and things like that. And one of the, the, uh, the things that it's kind of paradoxical because I really agreed with it then. And now I, I look at it kind of the opposite and that's the sense of powerlessness. Um, so, you know, the, you got to admit that you're powerless over substances or over alcohol. And, uh, at the time, you know, it was, it helped me learn about humility, it allowed me to be humble in the situation and recognize, you know, that I needed help and, um, and whatnot. However, like if you move forward several years later, um, you know, they use the serenity prayer in, in, in AANA. Oftentimes when you're closing it up, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I really embraced that back in the days, um, you know, and I would say that every night. And then fast forward later, and um, I was introduced to a, a reworked version of that quote by Angela Davis, uh, you know, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I can no longer accept. And today, in my world, I believe that I'm all-powerful. And I don't mean that, like, in a huge egotistical way. What I mean to say, if I want love, happiness, success, if I, you know, think about it that way and I do the work myself, the universe almost always manifests it for me. Um, so in that sense, I'm all powerful, you know, I can manifest whatever I need to be happy. Um, so I'm not powerless in that regard. And I wonder, you know, um, what your thoughts are on that powerlessness, but also, you know, you talked about the the higher power, the idea of God. And it's interesting because when I was in recovery, it was, an, it was a topic that came up a few times and the the guy would say, well... You know, your higher power can be every, anything. It can be this chair over here. It can be whatever you want. Well, I mean, I get what he was trying to say, but obviously the chair is not my higher power. Um, and I wonder about how those, you know, and the the rigidity of some of those beliefs or principles might keep people away or push people away or make people insecure. Um, what do you think about that? Do you see any, like, because uh, you mentioned you want to, you know, walk the road of recovery through your, uh, you know, your indigenous value system. So what does that, you know, what does that mean when you look at it in contrast to 12 steps, narcotics, anonymous, alcoholics, anonymous, what can we do to, I mean, not saying we're going to change AA or NA, but like (laughs) what do we need to offer? Because I feel like it's AA and NA have all these good qualities. And like you said, like things like brotherhood or sisterhood or, um, you know, sharing the same experiences and stories, stories with people, um, getting a sponsor, all those things are very, very positive. But what do you think, what do you think's missing? Like, how can we revolutionize this into the future to where we're providing more, I don't even want to use the word inclusive, but like, you know, maybe things that are incorporating indigenous values, um, you know, not such rigid belief systems in certain ways so that we can, so that it's more open for, especially these younger generations, you know, to embrace. I just wondered if you could share your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. And I, I've got a ton of thoughts. Like we would have to do a whole other, you <laughs> know, with myself being a, a, a chemical dependency counselor and being in social work and things like, it's like what I think about a a whole lot. Right. But you've pretty much nailed like my, my personal AA experience and feelings like I absolutely needed it in the beginning. Um, I needed something right I needed a community of people who I could uh, relate to a place where I could go where there was someone else who understood what I was saying what I was saying because even my wife she she's she's not a uh, she doesn't she's never struggled with substances. My mom they never you know the people who love me the most. They they can't relate to it. I needed a place, um, and the good thing about AA is it's free. You know they're everywhere. Everyone knows what it is. You know, so if you ask someone or you Google it, you know it's it's there. Um, and I needed I, I I think I needed some sort of structure, and I feel like the steps are something that like. If any person wanted to work through those kind of steps, like you, you would get value from it, right? Like mm-hmm. taking an inventory, um, uh, making amends, do, do you know sorts sorts of stuff like that? Like I, I feel like almost any human could get some kind of, of value from working through those steps like that. But I totally agree with you a hundred percent where the powerlessness thing. Um, doesn't jive with me anymore. Um, and there's just certain other, other things. Um, I think having a sponsor is like for, for my, for my personal self, having a sponsor is an awesome thing, but needing to have a sponsor, like someone always towning like, like, I, I think, you know, best what you need during your recovery. Right. And if you don't know what's best, then you're not going to recover. And then Hopefully you'll make it back and you'll figure it out, you know, next time and things like that. Um, as far as like changing AA, what I think, and since I'm not an AA person, it doesn't really matter. What what I think, um, what I had always thought was um, uh, like they've updated their book a lot of times, right? Like, it needs a new, more modern update, right? But for some reason, like, now they're, like, they won't do it. Just like the Constitution's been amended so many times. But now it's, like, you're crazy if you mention that the Constitution probably needs to be modernized or or whatever. It's the same thing with the AA book. Like, for some reason, it's the fifth or sixth edition. But if someone starts talking about making a seventh edition that fits some of the more, you know, modern beliefs and is a little more uh, inclusive and things like that. Like, no, 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 you're messing, you're messing with it. So I think it needs that, but it doesn't matter. Right. Cause I'm not a AA person. I'm not in there. I'm not going to try to try to change it. What I think in general, though, what people who are seeking recovery need are more options. They need more options. Cause like they, they'll say, you know, there's a uh, drug courts and, um, uh, different places like that and they basically you know like hey you won't go to jail but they'll give them like a sentence of you have to go to three AA meetings a week you know you see a therapist you wear this monitor and you go to three AA meetings a, a week or whatever like that's part of their pro- probation or whatever um, but AA doesn't is not right for everyone Um, mm-hmm. I wish that they that there were other options besides AA where they would say you know you could go to this you could go to that you could go to this you and really um i don't know you know who i know there's smart recovery there's things called dharma recovery things like that which which are awesome um uh, they just people need more options
0: uh it's, instead it's of trying to, Sorry. No, I was just
1: going to say, instead of trying to change AA, like, like maybe let them do their thing because it works mm-hmm. for a lot of people, but just give other people more options.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, it's interesting because, you know, in American or Western culture or whatever you want to call it, like we're so hung up on precedent sometimes, like the way things were done. And so that's the way that it should be done, especially when it's in writing and whatnot. And so I think, when you mentioned change in AA. I don't think that AA is going to ever change because it's kind of dogmatic at this point um, to a large degree. And maybe that's why, you know, it's able to stick around so long, but um, it's very curious to me why there aren't more options over the years. Why more haven't a different option or something that's counter or looks at it in a different way, more inclusive. I don't know. A lot of different things. And I, I know there've been things like smart recovery, but they, nothing's really ever come anywhere near the realm of, of, you know, of what, you know the twelve steps, the AA and yeah, it, it, they it's they've never like, even approached it.
1: They're 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 they don't make money, right? Like like you're, you're they they're vehemently against you know uh, taking huge donations or or charging for anything or anything. So this is not going to be the right word, but in a sense, it's like they have a monopoly on on that kind of thing, just because the name means so much, right? And like smart recovery, like what's that? What's you know mm-hmm. if you're not in if you're not in social work or in counseling or something, most people don't know what smart recovery is. And and yeah, it's like how do we change that? I don't have an answer for that. Like I, I would love for people to come, like like let's do it, let's do something. But how do you?
0: Yeah, well, I just saw Heather's comment in there. You know, and she makes a good point. They are allowing people to choose so long as they're building social and recovery capital, meaning they're making figure somebody's making some money off of you. And I don't know what it's like there, um, but some of the ways that it's changed in Alaska, just since, you know, I first, the first time I lived here as an adult was like 2009. And just since then, it's changed significantly. And so basically the model for much of Alaska is, um, you know, in particular Southeast Alaska where I live is that, uh, you know, they, what they do is they offer outside folks from out of state, 10,000 bucks, uh, sign on bonus, $10,000 moving bonus then they move them here and they don't give them the resources they need to be you know effective clinic clinicians or social workers or whatnot and then they're here for a few years and they can't take it and they leave and so it's an ongoing cycle of forever and ever so like I was mentioning the can't go through all the history obviously but you know there's history of trauma with boarding schools and other things that have happened in in this area and villages and, and, and whatnot and like I said they haven't ever been the proper healing or the 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 level of healing that needs to take place has never happened. And so basically, you know, it's corporation here and, and elsewhere, corporations that are dictating what kind of, I say, corporations and and uh, insurance companies are dictating what and how people receive treatment. And uh, it's just like trying to stretch to, you know, it's like, uh, you know, not enough butter spread out over too much toast, right? It's not really achieving the, the, the depth of what it needs to do to heal individuals or the community. And so I was wondering, what, what do you think about that? Like, where are we going as, as social work, as a profession? It's over-professionalized, in my opinion. Um, corp, like I said, corporations, insurance companies are have basically taken over the the industry to a large degree. And so do you think that we can pull away from that and find more organic, you know, more towards spirituality, you know, earth-based religions cultures whatever um you know more circular reciprocal logic like do you see us being able to move social work forward in that in that direction or do you think we're we're stuck going down this this road of capitalism
1: um both (laughs) both i'm i'm a i'm a, a optimist honestly and and like i i see a lot of good things like like i do like even the um prevalence of things like of drug courts instead of just locking someone up um the uh the um you'll see there's like so many grants or government funded this or that or this you know um but on the on the other hand like like yeah where does where does the money end up going where like like what does end up happening, and you're 100 percent right about the, uh, you know, the insurance playing like an outsized role of, of uh, who who gets the chance, right? Who gets the chance to recover, and and, and not just um, not just from addiction, but from mental, uh, you know, a mental illness or uh, trauma, things like that. I see that there's a lot of people out there um, with a lot of great ideas, like holistic recovery, you know, people, you know, mm-hmm. like, like yourself and, and things like that. Um, it just seems like the funding never finds those people, right? Uh, the funding finds the status quo, the. Uh, a lot of times the stuff that they'll say like, oh, this is evidence based. This is evidence. what's well, evidence based because they were able to fund the research mm-hmm. that did the event and, and the the other stuff like like if you could go back and say so so you're saying that ancient holistic forms of healing and things like that. Is not evidence based. It's not enough evidence that it's been around for a thousand years and that it's still here, right? Like, I just heard someone today that said, "So, you, if, if you're into gardening, you go and you um, make it like a beautiful garden, right? And you leave it alone for three months, it'll be a disaster. Like, your your stuff will probably be dead. It'll look crazy. It'll look, but the forest." You can leave it unattended for thousands of years, and it just keeps growing. It just keeps being the forest, right? Like it it didn't need – like. and and to me, the way that I would look at it in this is the garden is the evidence-based science. This is what we're funding and what we're helping along where there's other traditional and holistic ways of of helping people that's – it's always been there. It, it, it hasn't had, you know, interference and, and um, yeah, I would like to see people get those as, as their options, you know, like, uh, you know, going to ceremonies or going, you know, um, I, I just, I, I don't, I don't have answers on how do we, you know, like I'm here in Texas and we have a major problem with, you know, mass shootings and things like that. And we, you know, have more guns than but we have, you know, the highest population in the country and we have more guns than people. And every time it happens, it says, well, the um, legislators say we got to focus on mental health. We got to, it, it's, it's a mental health problem, not a gun problem. But they don't fund the mental <laughs> health initiatives. They don't fund the, the education programs, uh, things like that that would help with the mental health problems so it's like ground ground up you know
0: isn't texas isn't the way that that texas deals with most people with mental health problems is putting them in jail
1: yeah huge and so i've seen positive change in that in in recent years you know and i think statistically it'll, it'll show that you know there's the it, it's going down but yeah but for sure our our number one uh, mental health service provider is our jails like and like by far, that's where people go to get mental health, you know, and and there's people that know, um, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm having a bad episode. I I need to get locked up for a while. You know, I'm going to break into a house or, or, or I need, you know, like, like how you were saying, um, you went to the hospital for, uh, you know, because you wanted to get sober, well, people know, like, well, dang, if if I go to jail, that's the only chance that I'll have to be in to get into like a thirty or sixty day program. Um, yeah, our our jails are our number one mental health care providers.
0: Yeah, I think you know, in in a way, I mean, there's many different ways you can look at addiction and whatnot, but one of the ways you could look at it as, you know, addiction. Leads us to a lack of connection, and maybe stems from a lack of connection to whatever it is—to so ourselves, to the, to the earth, to the environment, to our family, to our culture, whatever it is—it can be a lack of connection. And you know, being someone who's been to jail, and, and you know, have a lot of i have have relationships with folks in jail or prison. Um, you know, it's a very—it's—it's it's the most disconnecting place that you can be. And so I just wish my point is, is that I wish that we could have a more warm environment for people to experience their recovery. Cause just like the people you mentioned that needed to think, they needed to go to jail to get some time away. Well, that 28 days I spent in treatment was crucial for me to be removed. Does that make sense? You know, like just being oh, yeah. away from it, just, just having a different environment for only for one month, but that's a long time. And, you know, especially back when I couldn't see them till tomorrow. Um,
1: and yeah, just, I, was just, oh. I just wanted to clarify too, like those people are not going just to get away. They're going because they know that that's the only way that they'll be able to see a counselor or a therapist mm. or get into uh, some kind of treatment program is yeah. like, like they got to go to, it's easier for them to see a counselor when they get locked up than it is for them to see a counselor just because they're calling across crisis hotline saying that they need to see a counselor stuff. And, I mean, it's not right at all, you know, and it, that, but that's how it is in, in Texas. And I think in, in other parts of the country too, which is not right.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I think you you had mentioned earlier that, you know, there are a lot of people with really good ideas that are doing a lot of good things in social work and beyond. Um, and I think that I agree with you. There's so many, you know, cool and interesting and revolutionary folks, social workers and beyond that are doing realm doing work and 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 whatnot activism in the, in the realm of social work and i think that the issue is is that it's like things take generations to happen sometimes so you know the obviously like the 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 professionalization in the capitalism's capitalistic side of social work doesn't reflect those ideas that we're talking about or those individuals or or, or folks that have the new ideas but perhaps you know like having, like you said, having a positive outlook is that those ideas and these, that these people are generating and producing in the present will manifest itself in our children's lifetimes, if that makes sense. Um, that's, the, that's the hope that I would have anyways. Um, well, Stephen, I thought that it might be a good time to answer some of it. There's already some questions in the chat and just open it up if anybody wants to cue in on the phone. That's cool too, but there's already some questions here we can get to. Um, Kim asks, um, do you feel that community outreach is needed for AA and NA in our community or for more awareness, making it a safe place for people in an active addiction to tell their story? Because AA and NA doesn't really have outreach, does it? No.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They, they don't, they don't believe in doing any sort of, uh, outreach. They, they, um, like the members basically the, the way that, that, I was taught it is it like, members live the program and your life should be the outreach. Um, they, they don't do any uh, promotion or anything like that. And I think the reason for that is they don't want to um, set up any personality as being, like, the leader. This is the guy who promotes it. Or any single AA group as being like hey this is the spot this is where where you should go you know so because they're all over the world you know so um but yeah i mean i there there could be a similar program like that i could see that could that could be a little more modern and do some promotion and stuff like that um if there was like a like a newer group or something
0: it would be cool if, you know, like you said, if there were, you know, more options, right? yes. that's even if even if we created your option, for example, that's not going to be for everyone either. So if right. you talk about we had we had options, well, then hopefully, you know, those different options, whatever they are, these agencies, groups, whatever, that I'm not saying that they have to completely promote themselves. But like, it'd be nice to when you're going around, you know, say, as an alcoholic or an addict or somebody that knows someone even. You go into the store or whatever, you know, they have the message boards. We've got message boards online as well via social media that they were just not necessarily like super promotion, but just like options. You know, people saw that there were options just by looking around, whether that's online or in person, they saw that there's different options for them to go talk to somebody or to get help or to find camaraderie in, in recovery. You know what I mean? I think that's, that's what I would like to see for the future.
1: Yeah. Hey, hey, and, and you know what that, that made me think of? There's a group on Instagram called the luckiest club mm-hmm. and they're really there. And, and I don't know why I didn't think about this earlier. They're almost like put in a model. They're, they're not AA, but similar. They do recovery meetings and things like that. And uh, they, um, someone in the comments, Heather had mentioned mentors and not sponsors. They, they have, you know, mentors, just people who've been in the program for a while and they're really kind of big because I got invited to to uh, to uh, do a chat at one of their meetings. It was like twenty-five minute. Come share your story. I thought it was going to be a handful of people, and I went, and there was a couple hundred people in that one wow. random, and that was like on a Wednesday at four o'clock or something, you know. So, and but and and they promote. They they promote their meetings, their weekly stuff like that, and they do that on. Uh, Probably on all social media, but where I see them is on Instagram, and that's a cool community to that I would suggest to tell, especially younger people about. I don't yeah, know why I didn't think out. about I, them earlier.
0: Actually, I have uh, like uh, assignments. It's hard too much for me to explain here, but in the class I'm teaching, and I can. I'm going to look them up and try to throw that in there so that we can, you know, because I feel like the more often too often, you know, we just associate recovery as as AA if that makes sense. So we're talking yeah. about it, we call it AA, and so. I'd like to like change that paradigm for my student to help my students change that paradigm.
1: yeah yeah I, I was in a meeting with some um and there was actually some uh, dallas police in there and they were saying you know we, we would love to give other options we just we, we don't know what else to say you know like we say you know go to aa because we don't uh know what else. you know they're the people who work with the the drug program they were like find us some other resources or send some other places our way but you know, people are complaining, saying, "Oh, they just told us to go." And you're, you're right; like we might even do the do the same thing, you know, because what else do you say? But yeah, there's there's others out there.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we'll, i look forward to looking that up. So thanks for sharing it. And if anybody is listening too has has ideas, please share those. So we, especially can we move forward through this um, through this summer as we're, our focus is is kind of on substance abuse, and please share those with me. Um, all right, Heather asks uh, Stephen, "Do you get to share ceremony in your role as a helper?"
1: Um, I I participate in ceremony, but I I, I don't lead anything anything. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, and, and we and we really you know don't talk about the the ceremonies too much or anything like that. But yeah, I I I don't lead any
0: as far as in ceremonies yeah and i can share this real quick um there's this cool book that uh, i was introduced to a while back and i send these out to a lot of the guests so you might get one but uh it's called the seven circles indigenous teachings for living well and they kind of um talk about how ceremony is one of the seven circles yeah and they talk about it and they do a good job at also talking about you know non-indigenous folks engaging and like how you know because i know you've you know, it's it's kind of a it can be a taboo subject at time that can be misappropriated and whatnot. But this book that that book does a really good job. So it's called The Seven Circles Indigenous Teachings for Le- Living Well by Chelsea Luger and Tosh Collins.
1: Oh wow, I would Check I that. would love to to see that. And you, you, we were talking about something earlier that um I wanted to mention and that so you with when we were talking about AA and like the problems with it and things like that and you were mentioning how they would. Say, uh, you know, even a chair could be your higher power and stuff like that. So one of my things that that happened with with AA, and this was this caused controversy even in my own own household. But um, one of my uncles, he was one of our one of our leaders. He he passed away. Um, I think in 2016, 2017. he. He says that in our culture, there's no such thing as a higher power, and it took me a while to wrap my mind around that, and what it's it's saying is – so we – our our big view as as Lakota people, and there's other indigenous that have the same view, uh, other uh, indigenous nations, but as Lakota, we say we're all related, and when we say we're all related, I'm saying me and you are related. Me and my son are related, but also like the trees, the rocks, rats, wells, mountains, and our relationship with everybody is a familial relationship. So it's um, when you need help, you're reaching out. Like I, I may reach out to you for help. I may reach out to my son for help. I may use a rock to help me with something. And the same thing with me, I should be able to help people. And so it's a helping relationship. And so that with everything in all creation, it's like a family. Everything's, everything's equal. You don't, you you might say in your family, who's the wisest person? Who's the fastest person? Who's the, who's the handyman? Who's the organizer? But you don't usually say like, who's the highest power in our family? Who does everybody in the family need to worship or come to for help like there's different there's no one high power you go to your relatives for help whatever that relative may be the you know oxygen is a relative and so that's that's kind of my like i don't i don't have a higher power so that kind of takes away everything that aa is about for me because I'm trying to be a relative to everything and how can I help that relative and how can that relative help me?
0: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And that brings me to a a good question. Um, And a theme of the podcast that's really just developed organically. I think I was, when I, when I first started putting the podcast together, I was reading a lot of things about kinship Um, and become very interested in it recently, not only like you mentioned kinship between, us different human beings, but, uh, you know, kinship with the natural world, with the earth, with, um, with animals, people call animal relatives. Um, you know, I live here, as you can see behind me and I was, and I was talking about earlier, I live in a natural world paradise pretty much, although it's a bit colder and rainier than I would like. Um, the wildlife here is amazing from the whales to the sea lions, to the otters, to the, to the chipmunks, to the birds chirping out my window, to the black bears, to the, you know, to the orcas and the bald eagles and the ravens. It's just an absolute paradise. And I've, you know, had many opportunities to not necessarily like actively engage, engage with the animals interaction, but just by putting myself out there and I feel like sending an invitation and being open, you know, I've been able to connect with, with many of the, uh, what you call wildlife, many of the animals, um, here in the area, just by, like I said, by being present, open, and kind of having an invitation. And there's these little interactions that happen all the time. And so I've been building my own relationship, my own kinship um, with other human beings, but also with, like I said, with the natural world. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe if that, if a kinship in that regard has helped you in your recovery.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, it, it absolutely has Um now I live in Dallas, which the um, the Dallas Fort Worth area. Like I was just seeing something the other day, is like more populated than than forty of the states. You know, just in our in, in this area. So it's a hugely urban area. There's not a lot of, like you said, w- wildlife. Um, but in in my recovery. And just since I, I've got back more in touch with my culture, like, you start noticing things that I never noticed before, you know, like the, uh, the, the um, different trees, you know, pecan trees in my backyard, squirrels. One big thing over here is um, a lot of the natural animals in this area, like coyotes and opossum, things like that, people look at them as nuisance you know they put out like warnings like oh the, the coyotes are trying to kill our dogs and stuff like wait we built onto their home and they're and they're like you know 10 years ago there we didn't have these problems with coyotes and like yeah because you keep taking their homes and that that like like we're moving into to their home and um yeah i, I just see it, it it's it's all related right like we keep colonized indigenous lands and we're colonizing wildlife and we're calling and it throws us all out of balance and the more that that i feel like the more you get into into balance with nature the better that helps yourself with the uh, recovery um with your mental health things like that like being able to i know there was one year uh um about three or four years ago when it was uh first turning into spring me and my wife were like man why are all of these trees turning white like why do they all have like these white flowers all over them and i asked my grandma and my grandma was like they've always done this i was i was like are you kidding me she was like like literally forever these trees have have done this and i'm like the crazy thing was i just never noticed i never took the time but then when you start to notice Nature, you realize, like, it's beauty, but we get so, like, I had lived 35 years and didn't even realize that all these trees in the area, and I don't remember what certain tree it was, uh, turn white when they start to bloom. Uh, I, like, have these white flowers on it. And I think just stuff like that is powerful in, in recovery, just noticing nature, tuning into it. You know, it sounds very... Like some people, oh, that's hippie, that's what it, but that's what life is all about to me, I think.
0: Yeah, um, you know, I'm a, I am read to my kids a lot, my little kids, and we just finished uh, the book, Charlotte's Web, and I'd seen the cartoon as a kid. Um, but the book I thought was great because it really ex- explored um, just different perspectives of looking at, at, at animals and whatnot, although these are livestock, not wildlife, animals. But uh, the little girl, I think her name is Fern, she um, hangs out at the, at the farm all day and listens to the animals talk to each other. And she tells her parents about it, and the mom gets real concerned, like, you know, animals don't talk and, and all this stuff. And, and uh, so she goes to the, I think it's a psychiatrist or something that she knows in town, and she talks to him about her daughter. And is like, you know, should I be worried? You know, she's over there talking to the animals. And he's like, well, it sounds like a pretty good place to be to me um you know in there with the animals and she's like well she's talking to the animals she said she can hear them like don't you think that's crazy and he's like how do you know she can't hear them maybe she you know she can hear things that we don't hear anymore she has other other ways of of being attuned and then she talks about the um how the there was the message in the spider web i think it said terrific or something like that and she said don't do you think that's a miracle and he's like well well don't you think that the spider web in itself is a miracle Wow. Just like, what do you mean? It's just an ordinary old spider web. And he's like, he's like, can you spin a spider web? Can you do anything like that? So don't you think it's pretty much a miracle that this little spider, with nobody to teach it, can spin these beautiful webs? And, um, you know, I just have an example of it. Downstairs, in my, I got like a sliding glass door, and there's this web that's, that's been there forever, and it catches all the flies coming into the house. And for a while I was like, oh yeah, it's cool, it's, you know, I'll just leave it there. And then I was outside one day, and I looked up, and in the window thing, there's, like, this section of, of glass that's on the other side. It's covered by wood, but so, the, like, a spider could get in there. And it was, like, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm not exaggerating by any means. There was probably, like, a million, like, fly carcasses in there, flying oh. <laughs> bee carcasses. So, I was, like, oh, this spider is a killer. And so, I don't know why, but I had the motivation to cut it, to put the broom and get the web gone. It kind of freaked me out. But then the web was there. Beautiful, like fully constructed. Next morning, and I was like, you "Oh, know, wow!" I'm reading Charlotte's Web, and I'm like, "That's a miracle! How does this little spider put that thing, you know, put that web all the way back up there in one, you know, less than 24 hours? That is, a, you know, that is a miracle." And and I look at it like, you know, I went back to believe to looking at it like, you know, she, whatever it's she the spider's doing her business and she's catching the flies coming in the house, and um, you know, I just in, in honesty, I feel honored to be a part of that. It seems so simple, but you know, like we can't do that, we can't recreate that as humans. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So it's just a, a cool experience for me. Well, um, I don't see any more questions, and I don't think anybody's in the caller queue. So, Stephen, I um, before I let you go, I have I just wanted to ask you one final question. Um, you know, so say somebody's out there and they're listening to this podcast, um, you know, in the future, whatever. Um, apple or spotify and they come across it and uh you know they're feeling like i was saying starting to feel a little bit liberated and like they might be able to change their lives or seek the help that they need or you know seek a friend or a mentor or go to treatment whatever whatever any of these things but they're they're thinking about these things what advice do you have or what hope can you offer to to folks because one thing that you mentioned um i had written it down here hold on make sure i say it right um I can't find it, but you, oh yeah, right here. You speak about the significant changes that sobriety brought into your life and you state quote, that it was the biggest, uh, that the, excuse me, that the, the changes that it brought was quote, the biggest understatement ever. And I was wondering if you could one, share about the transformations and how they've impacted you and your family, your world, but what also can hope can you give to somebody who is thinking they're feeling a little liberated and they're thinking about, you know, digging a little deeper and finding a new way for themselves.
1: Yeah, I would love to share that, and and what what I mean by that. So, if if anyone wants to to look and see, you know, the the physical manifestation of my change, you could go to uh, Stephen S T E P H E N Stays Clean on Instagram, and see like a before and after of me. Stephen Stays Clean. So, what I mean by the changes in my life. So, the physical is the first that you know people notice you know i I, when i got sober i lost like uh, uh i lost i think in total 160 pounds but now i've gained like 20 of it back back and forth fluctuate you know um but so that's part of it but the real when i got sober i could not walk down the block of my house um I mean, down you know, from in front of my house down the block. I've ran thousands of miles now, you know, so physically I can run. Um, I didn't have a degree. Now I have associates working on my bachelor's. I've, I've written an undergraduate thesis. Uh, I'm giving presentations in different parts of the country... Uh, you know, in in any given month, uh, working with community organizations with the missing and murdered indigenous women, helping develop a curriculum, which is going to go live in the state of of Texas, hopefully next semester of American Indian studies. All of this stuff, like I would never in my wildest dream have imagined. Like I was an addict high functioning right that term again who worked in banking doing what i could for my family but not not anything of value to my community to the world to the and the thing was when i was in high school remember i i I had mentioned two hours ago at the beginning of this conversation Mm -hmm. that uh I was like part of a group and we were like breaking up gang fights and talking about nonviolence and things like that. I had visions for myself of helping change the world, right? At 15, 16. And through addiction, I totally lost sight of that, right? Through addiction, cynicism, getting beat down by life type deal. But in recovery, I found all of that again. And um yeah, it, it um it just totally changed me. And if if I can change, I feel like anyone can because I started at the at the lowest, lowest point. I didn't start from you know this high point or whatever, you know, my I, I was near death, you know. And if, if I could change, I feel like anyone could change. And you know you're you're quoting charlotte's web one thing that i that i want to quote that i feel relevant to our conversation and to my life just last night i saw the new transformers movie and there's a part in the movie where he says cuz they're like kind of going back and forth like should you try to ch- save your family or save the universe right like that's the overarching theme and there's a part where the guy says i'm going to save my family by saving the universe and i was like woo, yeah you know that kind of like got me because it, it feels like that's it's it's like a lofty goal right to say you're gonna change the world or help your community or help you know but if you can change the world then you're making the world a better place for your family so you are saving your family by saving the world
0: that you ever heard the there's a saying actually I the guy I heard this in AA back in the days and the story about a um and I'll get to you right after this Willow um there's a story about a man who was busy and his daughter wanted to play with him or something like that and the the daughter keeps asking him when are you going to be able to play with me daddy and he says and he rips up a um uh a map and uh so the map's all in pieces, and he says, "Put the world back together, and then I'll be have time to play with you." My world is falling apart, and so she comes back, and it's all taped together. And he said, "How the hell did you put that map back together?" And she said, "It's simple. There was a man on the back, and I just put the man back together, and the world fell into place." Um, I, yeah, and I heard that back in a back in the day, I was like that, but I think that's just the opposite of what you said. The, but yeah, it's true. the same though, and if if, you, if that makes sense, it's the reciprocal nature of it.
1: It's all um, connected.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, I want to get to, uh, to Willow. Willow, you're live. Can you hear us?
2: Yes. Can you hear me?
0: Yep. Okay. Thanks for calling in.
2: Uh, Steven, I wanted to circle back to your, you said you didn't like the term high functioning. Uh, my question would be, do you think that high functioning is really a form of masking? You know, you aren't really functioning properly, but that alcohol or the drug, kind of like how Professor Stetler mentioned, it gives you that sense of confidence to feel maybe you are functioning um, and that no one else can see under your mask, see your true alcohol or drug usage. Um, And then kind of stemming off of that was um, both of you kind of mentioned that once you were sober and you were sharing your reasonings um, with people, they started to either open up themselves and say, oh, you know, I've been feeling that same way. Would, would that maybe be a further example of how well adjusted they had made their mask over time?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's part of it. I I think that it's a, um, like you said, a, a mask, a, a cover. Some people are better at covering it than others. Some people It sometimes it's just you know you're more privileged at being able to cover it you know maybe you have a like myself i had a office job right where i could come in hungover or slightly drunk and sit in my chair and maintain behavior If, if you're a mechanic or something like that and you're working on cars and putting it together maybe you don't have the privilege to seem high functioning every day going into work um hungover or you know, things like that. And, and I think that it's also just a tactic, like to make yourself feel a little better. Like, yeah, you know, I'm, like for myself, that's what it was. Oh, I'm getting this done. I'm handling my business so I can drink a little bit. Um, It's just, it's just can verbiage. I, can I say something real quick, Steve? I just wanted
0: to add what you were saying. Uh, Cause you're, you're saying exactly my thoughts is that we're like, we're a, we're a world of, or a culture, and when I say culture, I mean American culture, of hierarchies. And so we like to place ourselves above, it's, our, it's almost natural at this point for us to, to or maybe even in, intuitive or falsely intuitive to wanna to place ourselves on a hierarchy. And so I think oftentimes, when we say we're higher functioning, we're saying that at least we're not the drunk from the AA book that's hiding gin underneath their cushion. Does that make sense?
2: That does make sense. Yeah, and,
1: and for me, it's like it's like how I was saying, like, the guy who I gave a ride home who wanted to stop and drink right there before he got home, like, I was higher functioning than him, so it made me feel better. But then at some point, I was him in the same spot, so I was higher functioning than the person who wakes up in the morning and drinks, but then at some point, I was him, so we're, like, always – So and, and as a counselor, I see, like, almost everyone says – I was high functioning. Like, there's rarely someone. I mean, you do get clients who, you know, were at like a very, very low bottom, and maybe that's another way to look at. Like, you probably just hadn't reached your lowest bottom yet. But almost everybody thinks they're they're high functioning, and and it's it's like a coping mechanism or a mask, as Willow said.
0: Yeah. Did he uh, answer everything you needed, Willow?
2: Yes, absolutely. Thank
1: you. Thank Thanks you. For calling in.
0: Well, all right, we're wrapping it up. We're over a little over two hours. Um, Steven, I want to thank you sincerely from the bottom of my heart um, for coming on here and talking story for, you know, generously donating us with your, uh, you know, your time, your presence, your wisdom, your knowledge, your experiences. Um, it's been a really good conversation for me. And I've had light bulbs going off the whole time. And like you said, a few times we could spend hours talking about just any one of these topics, which, you know, maybe we should, we need to do at some point. Um, but again, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart to yours, from my family to yours. I wish you all the best. Um, thanks to the callers that called in um, for tuning in, uh, for participating in the podcast. I really appreciate it. But uh, Steven, I wanted to, you know, Give it up to you. Do you have any last words you wanted to share?
1: Um, I I don't. My my the the universe thing was really <laughs> was really my my uh save save uh, the universe to save your family was really my uh I, I was like I'm gonna hit this and we're gonna close and we're <laughs> but um no I I appreciate it man. This this was really cool. I I didn't know you know uh, that it was gonna go this long, but it really just felt natural, right? Like we're just we're just talking. And like you said, we could go a lot longer. There were a lot of things that, that you said that set off light bulbs for me too. And I'm like, man, yeah, let's, so let's do this again. Um, This was really cool.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, And I think that we produced a lot of good uh, dialogue that leads to content that can really help people. And like I said, potentially liberate them or, you know, give them some hope and lessen the burdens that they're feeling and, and towards a new path of hope. And I can't speak for Steven, but I, I, I would assume so that, you know, if you, if you heard something and you need something from us, then look for us on Instagram or email me or talk to us wherever you can. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that wraps up the episode. Like I said, it's been a great one. We went a little bit longer than I expected as well, but, um, good dialogue is good dialogue and you really don't have control over it. It goes where it goes and it takes as long as it takes. Um, so, Stephen, I wish you all the best. Take care, and um, I'll be in touch with you about a few things, and hopefully we can get together again. Um, and that wraps it up. If you, uh, This episode should be posted on the call-in maybe in an hour or so, and I'll try to get it up to Spotify and Apple by the end of the day, so long as there's no technical difficulties. Um, next week, I'll, have, I'll be joined same time next week, 10 o'clock Alaska time, with Zenya. She's out of Toronto and she is an LCSW who founded and runs a private practice called a little Zen. And so I think that's going to be a real cool conversation as well. So, uh, come around for that if you can. And, uh, that's it, everybody. The critical social worker is a collaborative effort between the university of Alaska Fairbanks department of social work and a conscious party productions. You've been listening to the critical social worker, a revolutionary